are going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And we see here that Paul is continuing his defense of the gospel. He is defensing the idea that we are not justified at all by any works we have done or any rites that we perform or anything we do in this life. But instead, we are justified by grace through faith and faith alone. And that's the message that Paul preached when he visited the churches in Galatia. And yet something has happened. Something has changed. There are Judaizers who have come into this place and they are teaching a different gospel. They're teaching the church in Galatia that not only must they have the grace of Christ, but they must also have a stack of works that earn them merit before God. And Paul is adamant that this cannot be. And so he begins again as he goes through this argument. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, we see the text says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As Paul begins this portion of the letter, he is absolutely bewildered at the fact that the Galatian church would be abandoning the gospel that they had received. He is so frustrated and he is so overwhelmed with this idea that he looks at them and says, you foolish Galatians, has someone bewitched you? Because it's the only thing that makes sense to Paul. Now, Paul doesn't literally think that they're under a spell. He doesn't literally think that something has happened that way. But the idea of abandoning the gospel is so foreign. It is so alien. It is so outside the realm of possibility for Paul. He doesn't understand how they've done it. He does not comprehend that they would receive the pure and true gospel and then all of a sudden turn to something else. And so he asks them the question. He says, you foolish Galatians, has someone bewitched you? Has someone put you under a spell? Has someone convinced you of something that is untrue? How could this happen? And why is it that Paul is so bewildered? He's so bewildered because Paul knows the work he did while he was there. He opens up this passage. He talks about the idea. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, if you know your geography and you know your church history, a couple things stand out in that sentence. First of all, Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem, and that is not in Galatia. So how is it that Paul looks at them and says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Okay. Well, the word portrayed that Paul is using there literally is the word they would use to hang a poster in the public square. It's the word they would use to proclaim something in a public place. And so what Paul is saying is he's looking at them and saying, listen, when I was with you 
and I was preaching the gospel to you, you remember what I said. And Paul, as he preached the gospel to the churches of Galatia, to the men and women who were there, he did so with such passion. He did so with such clarity. He did so with, with such wonderful words that he used that he painted a picture before them. And it was as if those in Galatia saw Christ themselves crucified, dying for their sins. And in that gospel presentation, they believed. And, and so that's what Paul's talking about. And we see this kind of thing take place in our everyday life. You know, if you're an avid reader, you understand and you know that authors can do amazing things with words. They have the power to move us emotionally. They have the power to paint a picture in our minds as we read what they have written. One of my favorite authors of all time is J.R.R. Tolkien. And I read through all of The Hobbit and I read through the Lord of the Rings series with my kids. We spent probably seven, eight, nine months at bedtime reading those books every night, chapter by chapter, sometimes paragraph by paragraph. But we went through those books, and I gotta tell you, the words that J.R.R. Tolkien would use to describe things like the Shire, or the woods of Loch Lorraine, or the great kingdom of Gondor, or Minas Tirith, and all these places that are literally figments of his imagination. They don't exist, they're not real, and yet with the words that he uses, you can sit there and read the text and paint a picture in your mind and almost be transported to those very different places. That's why reading is such a phenomenal thing. You can travel the world from your living room. And that's what Paul has done for the people of Galatia. He has preached the gospel to them in such a way that they clearly understand and can almost see Christ crucified. And it's amazing to me that the first thing that Paul does in trying to get them back on track is he reminds them of what Christ has done. And he reminds them of the fact that Christ was crucified on their behalf. You know, in our culture today, we need that kind of reminder. We need to be reminded that Christ died for us. And a lot of times we kind of reserve those passages of scripture for Good Friday services. On Good Friday, we enter the church sanctuary very somber, very quiet. It's a memorial service that we have. And we read the passages of scripture about how Jesus died on the cross for us, how he was scourged for us, how he was beaten for us. And we like to save kind of, you know, those hard passages for that specific time of the year. And other times of the year, we like to talk about happier things. We like to talk about things that are a little more upbeat, a little more welcoming to people who may be visiting that Sunday. You know, tell us the story of maybe feeding the 5,000. That's a good one. Or like Peter walking on water and having faith. And that's kind of what we want to hear. But you know what? Paul didn't preach that way. Paul didn't go and give people necessarily what they wanted to hear. He wasn't interested in making his hearers happy or even worse, comfortable. But no, he gave them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23, it says, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks wisdom, but I preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. See, the Jews wanted signs. The Jews wanted wonders. 
They wanted proof and evidence that this Jesus was who he said he was. And Paul said, I don't have that for you. Sorry, it's not here. The Greeks, they wanted philosophy. They wanted debate. They wanted rhetoric. They wanted argument. They wanted to wrestle with concepts of, of metaphysics and all these things that were so intellectual and high shelf. Paul said, I don't have that. That's not what I'm presenting to you. It's not what I have to offer. What is it that they would write about the churches in the United States? The Jews want signs. The Greeks want wisdom. What is it that American churches often want? Feel-good messages? Empty platitudes? Good stories? Motivational speeches? Topical messages filled with drivel that we really don't need and just make us kind of feel good as we walk out the door. That's kind of what we crave and that's kind of what we want. And Paul would look at us and say, that's not what I have. The Jews want signs, the Greeks want wisdom, the Americans want comfort. And yet I preach Christ crucified. And that's exactly what he did to the churches of Galatia. He didn't come there to be popular. He didn't come there to send a message that the people liked or even give them a message they wanted to hear. He sent them Christ crucified. He reminded them of what had been done to secure their salvation. And why is that important for us? Why is it important that we remember the sufferings of Christ? Well, because the suffering of Christ is the gospel. You can't understand the grace of God unless you understand the high price that's been paid to obtain that grace. You can't understand what it is to be forgiven until you know the depth of your sin. So we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ hung on the cross for us, that he was beaten for us, that he was crushed by the wrath of God in our place. It may not be pleasant, it may not be popular, but it is the power of God unto salvation. And that's what Paul preached when he went to the churches of Galatia. As he went into their synagogues and reasoned with them from the scriptures, as he went before them in public proclaiming this Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead, he preached Christ crucified. And he did it in such a way that the people heard, they almost saw, and they believed. And thus the church in Galatia was formed. They were filled with the Spirit of God. And then Paul continues this argument, talking about this, this Jesus that was crucified and how they were saved. He then asked them a question. He goes on in the passage and says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So here's Paul's simple question. He's looking at the Galatian church and he's asking them to remember what's happened to them. He's asking them, look back in your history. When you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, how is it that you received the Spirit? Well, we have examples of groups of Gentiles receiving the Spirit of God listed for us all through the Scripture. But the most famous and the most prominent is found in the book of Acts chapter 10. Look over to Acts chapter 10 with me. 
And this is the story of Peter as he goes and he preaches the gospel to a group of Gentiles in Cornelius' home. This is the longest portion of narrative listed in the New Testament. It's the longest single narrative listed because it's one of the most important because it clearly shows that Gentiles can be saved. And so we look at this passage of scripture in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34. This is what Peter says to the people as he meets in their home. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God is with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commended us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all of the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the message that Peter gave to these Gentiles meeting in Cornelius' home. He said, there is a man, Jesus, who came to this place. He lived a perfect life. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. And then they killed him and they crucified him. But God raised him from the dead and we ate with him. We spent time with him. We saw him after he rose. And it is by his name that you are to be saved. And all the prophets point to this man, Jesus, by whom if you believe, you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be saved. You'll be redeemed. That's Paul's message. That's Peter's message to the Gentiles meeting in Cornelius' home. What's the response? And what is the effect of Peter's preaching of the gospel? The next few verses paint a crystal clear picture. In verse 44, it says, While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circle from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit were poured out even on Gentiles. Understand how important this is in church history because the reason that we are gathered here in the church today is because of Acts chapter 10, because the Spirit is poured out even on Gentiles like us. Now these are Gentiles. They were not law-abiding Jews. They had no works of righteousness they could claim for themselves. They didn't observe the holidays. They didn't celebrate Passover. They didn't keep a kosher diet. They didn't circumcise their children on the eighth day. They didn't do any of the things that God required his people to do in their law. And yet what happened when they heard the gospel and believed it? The Holy Spirit fell upon them. The Holy Spirit filled them. They were saved. They were redeemed. They were grafted into the family of God, not because of anything they had done, 
but simply because they heard the word of God and they believed. And Paul, back in the book of Galatians, looks at the people and says, when you received the Spirit, how did it happen? Did you work for it? Did you earn it? Did I go before you and hand you a list and say, complete these six steps, and when you do, bam, you've got the Spirit of God and you're good to go? No. It wasn't through works of any kind. It was through hearing the Word of God with faith. See, there are two parents here listed in the line of salvation. Only two. There's hearing the Word of God and faith. And you don't need anyone else. You know, it's just like when two parents come together and they have a baby. You got a mother and you got a father. And no matter what our culture says, and no matter what things are happening in Washington right now, that's how it happens. A mother and a father come together and you get a baby. Now, what would happen if after that baby was born, you kind of came up and said, you know what I think we need? I think we need a third parent to enter into this marriage. And again, no matter what happens in our culture, that's wrong. And we recognize that that's wrong. The idea that you would sit there with a mother and a father joined together in marriage and say, you know what, we're going to add a second dad into this relationship. Or we're going to add a second mother into this relationship. It's just perverse. And you look at it and you respond to it. You revolt against it. You say, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's wrong. That's exactly what the Judaizers were trying to do to this salvation that had been received by the Galatian church. They had their two parents. They had the word of God and they had faith. They heard the word, they believed the word, and they were saved. That's it. And yet the Judaizers wanted to shackle onto their backs this third parents of observance of the law. In the same way we revile against the idea of a third parent entering into that holy relationship of marriage, we should revile against the idea of the yoke of slavery to the law being shackled on those who are saved. Because there is no other salvation needed. In fact, this is the exact fight that the reformers fought in the 15 and 1600s. You know, the Catholic Church came along and they said, if you want to be saved, not only do you need to have faith in Jesus, not only do you need to hear the word of God, but you've got to pile your works on top of it. And they had a long list of works. In that time period, you had to go and you could earn penance by climbing steps in Rome and holding holy relics to burn off your time in purgatory. You could go and you could say a series of prayers that would earn you favor with God. You could suffer and that would earn you favor with God. You had to take Holy Communion in order to be saved. You had to be baptized in order to be saved. You had to confess your sins to a priest in order to be saved. You had to have absolution from a priest upon death in order to be saved. And they piled it on. Works, 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 works. Yet the scripture says no man shall be justified by works. Martin Luther felt this tension. And he wrote later, after he was saved, about his days as a monk trying to earn salvation from God. And this is what he wrote in his diary. He said, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God? who was supposed to note my strict observance to the monastic order and my austere life, 
I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow. In another one of his writings, he wrote this. When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifices, tortured myself with fasting, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. See, if we try to take the grace that God has given us, and we try to shackle it along with works of the law, we will be miserable. More importantly, we won't be saved. Because it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are grafted into the family of God. In fact, when Martin Luther was living out his life, what caused him to begin to think about these things was he actually looked at two copies of the scripture side by side. The Latin Vulgate, which was the Bible used by the Catholic Church at that time, looked down and it said, in order to be saved and be righteous before God, you must do penance. And then he looked at the actual Greek manuscripts and it said, in order to be saved, you must repent. And those are two very different things. See, to repent is to simply understand that what you've been doing and the way you've been living is wrong. It is to change your mind about who God is and that rather than living your life on your terms, you decide, I will now follow Jesus. And that's what Martin Luther did. As Martin Luther contemplated those things, as he contemplated the righteousness of God revealed in Romans chapter 1, and he finally understood that the righteousness we receive is not through works, but it is through grace. He said all at once he felt he was born again. He was saved. He was transformed. He was changed. And from that moment forward, his life was filled with joy and peace because peace had been made between him and God. He no longer tried to earn it. He no longer tried to fight for it. He no longer tried to wrestle with it. But he rested in the grace of his Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying to these people. He's saying, when you received the Spirit, when you were saved, it didn't happen by works, did it? But it happened by faith. And if you received the Spirit by faith, do you really think that you can use works to perfect yourself before God? And then he looks at them and says, did you really suffer these things in vain? Now, we think of suffering for Jesus, and we immediately think of this idea that, oh, they were persecuted, and they were struggling, and horrible things were happening to. It's not the sense of the word being used in this passage. What Paul is literally saying to them is, did you really experience these things in vain? Because what had the Galatian church experienced? Well, they experienced the same thing Martin Luther experienced in his life. They came to Jesus Christ with faith, and they experienced transformation and change. They experienced a new life. They experienced peace with God. They experienced now suddenly what it was to be a child of God. Guilt and shame were gone. Their penalty of sin was gone. They were given life everlasting, filled with the Spirit, and it bore the fruit of repentance in their life. And Paul says, did you see all that happening? Was it for nothing? Because now you've got to go work to be right with God? No, of course not. Because you're justified by the faith that you have been given. Not because of any work that you've completed, 
So why would you think that having been saved by grace, that now you would maintain righteousness through some kind of work that you're performing? You just can't do it. And in fact, this salvation by faith that the Galatian church received wasn't a new thing God was doing, but it was actually the plan of God from the very beginning. And Paul points that out as he continues his argument. In verse 5, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. At this point, Paul begins a big shift in the Scripture. And next week, we're going to talk all about Abraham and the righteousness he received. But here, Paul hangs his argument on this hat. He says... This righteousness that we receive from God, it's not a new thing that God is doing. But if we go all the way back to Abraham, if we go all the way back to the very beginning of the foundations of the Jewish faith, their patriarch, their father, he looks and says, how did Abraham receive righteousness? Did Abraham perform works of the law? He couldn't. The law wouldn't come for a long time. You don't get the law till Moses shows up hundreds and hundreds of years later. Was he living some good, pious, righteous life, worshiping God? No. Abraham was a pagan. He grew up in polytheism. He grew up worshiping a whole bunch of different gods. And what did God do? He looked to Abraham. He chose him. He called him out of his sinful life. And he said, Abraham, you belong to me. And this is what I'm going to do for you. He said, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you a son. You're going to become the father of nations. And through you and through your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. Well, after God made that promise to Abraham, some years went by, and Abraham began to be a little concerned. He looked up to God, and he said, God, I don't have a kid yet, and I'm old. Your promise hasn't come through yet, and I feel like I'm running out of time. Is my servant going to be my heir? Am I going to have to give all my stuff and all my property and all my possessions and my blessings to this person I've hired? Is that what you're going to do? And God looks at him and he says, no. You will have a son. And through your son and through your offspring, through the seed that is in you, I will bless the world. And this is what happened to Abraham. He heard the word of God. And he believed the word of God. He believed that the seed that was in him would go forward and bless the world. Did he know what that meant? Not fully. Did he understand that through his line and through his lineage, Jesus Christ would one day come and pay for the sins of the world on the cross? No. But what God revealed to him in his word, he believed it. And something miraculous happened. God looks at Abraham and says, the faith that you have been given in my word, I will count that as righteousness. Does it mean Abraham was righteous? No. We see Abraham's sin over and over again in the scripture. But it means this, your faith is reckoned to your account. And that same righteousness that Jesus Christ portrayed in his perfect life, the same righteousness that is now credited to our account because we place our faith in Christ, that same righteousness of Jesus was placed on Abraham's account. And God said, your faith I count 
as righteousness. So you see, salvation by grace through faith isn't a new idea in the Bible. It's a foundational idea going all the way back to the very beginnings of the Hebrew faith. And so Paul sits there and he says, if this is how it's been from the beginning, why would you ever change? That's why he looks at the Galatians and twice in this passage he says, you foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. How could you depart from a gospel that is so good, so pure, so wonderful? How could you depart from a gospel that has been God's plan from the beginning? If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, sitting here now, you have heard the gospel. There is nothing you can do sitting in this place to earn favor with God. There is no amount of prayer that you can pray. There is no amount of Bible you can read. There is no number of sermons you can listen to. There is no number of hours you can spend in church, nor number of hours you can spend on your knees before holy God that will earn you a right standing with him. There is no penance to pay. There is no right to perform. It is simply this. Just as the people on the day of Pentecost heard Peter preach the gospel to them, they called out and they said, what must we do to be saved? He said this, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. So if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you proclaim him to be Lord of your life, and if you believe in your heart that God truly rose him from the dead, then you'll be saved. I commend you today, give your life to the Lord Jesus. Place your faith and trust in him and him alone. Not the works of your hands, not the works of a priest, not the work of anyone or anything that has taken place in this world. But you place your faith and trust in Christ alone. For the scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The scripture said, for all those who believe, they shall not perish, but they will inherit eternal life. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly gracious Father, we thank you for the grace that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you, Lord, that you have lavished your grace on us in so many ways. Through the hearing of your word, through the filling of your spirit, through the sending of your son, through the gift of the church to support us and lift us up in our time of need. Lord, you've given us so many things we do not deserve. I pray that we would cling to your word. I pray that we would cling to your cross. And I pray that we would reach the place in our lives where we truly understand that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But our salvation is wholly a work and act of God Almighty. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your son. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.